What a thought. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. What a great reminder. Again, we have the privilege of thinking about that reminder via song and being encouraged as we sing together about the redemptive work of our Savior Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Well, we're at the point in the service where we continue our worship, and we worship as we open God's Word together and we take a look at a passage of Scripture. I'm going to ask you to open your copy of the Scriptures to my favorite psalm. Okay, we have been working, uh, we have been doing a Summer in the Psalms series, and we've been able to enjoy and appreciate uh, some of the heart of David, and we've looked at some psalms from Asaph. Um, This morning we're going to look at a song of ascent, if you will, a song of ascent, and that's what we have here in Psalm 121. So I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, and some of you grew up a little bit before I did, and several of you grew up after I did, we had a conversation about that earlier this morning, Um, but anyway, um, when I was growing up, there was this commercial, okay, and the commercial was an all-state commercial, and it said, you're in good hands with all-state. How many remember that commercial? Yeah, they've kind of changed their, their take on commercials now, and it's not so much about being in good hands, it's about, um, well, whatever you want to call the all-state commercials. I'm not a big fan of, of, of some of them. Some of them are pretty funny. seems like that's the thing with, with insurance commercials now, right? They have to be funny, otherwise nobody watches them. Anyway, you're in good hands with Allstate, and that kind of stuck with you throughout the days and throughout the weeks, and if you needed car insurance, that's one of the things that came into your mind, or home insurance, or whatever. You're in good hands with Allstate. Well, can I submit to you that we're in good hands with Jehovah God? If you think Allstate has good hands for you to rest in, I have better news for you this morning. Jehovah God has great hands for you to rest in. You have nothing to fear when you are resting in the hands of Almighty God. As we look at this psalm this morning, one of the themes that kind of runs throughout the psalm is that of security. And security is something that human beings long for. We want to have it in our lives. And that's evident in the number of security devices that we have available to us today. Uh, you, can, you can buy ring doorbells which have a camera in them. We can put cameras up around our house. We can, we can have all kinds of things that protect us. Um, there's some things that we can't talk about this morning because of the new law that went into effect. But anyway, um, we, uh, we understand how important personal security is to us as a, as, a pers- as a people, right? And even as a nation, our whole Second Amendment rights uh, are kind of geared around the idea of securing ourselves personally and securing ourselves as a nation. So security is evident in the world in which we live. Um, this morning, we're going to take a look at a passage of Scripture that speaks about how our great God is able to keep us safe and secure, We can rest in his care and in his provision and in his protection. So um, as we begin this morning, I want you to know that nowhere in Scripture does God promise that he will never allow trials or tribulations or even extreme difficult times into our lives. We need to understand that. That doesn't have anything to do with the promise of God to keep us safe and secure. Trials will come. And trials will go. And sometimes some people experience trials to the degree that it takes their life. Did God make a mistake? Did God not keep his promise? No, because when they wake up, they wake up in heaven. And there's no more secure place to be than in the very presence of our great God. Okay? Um, So as we think about that, I want to remind you that there are some religions out there today that will preach and teach and tell you that, you know, you you have every right as a child of God to be... to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and nothing should ever, nothing bad or difficult should ever come your way. Well, can I tell you something? That when they preach that kind of a message, they don't get it from the pages of Scripture. Okay? That prosperity gospel... It's not in the pages of Scripture. Who do we look at and say, wow, he was the greatest missionary of all time? 
We look at the Apostle Paul when we think of that, right? And Paul said, I know how to suffer need. I know how to suffer want. I know whatever state I am, I should be content. He says, I, I know how to abound. I know how to be abased. I know how to suffer want and suffer need. In whatever state I am, I know that God is in control of my life, and, and I'm satisfied and I am content with that going on in my life. So if it was good for the Apostle Paul, I can't imagine that it's not good for the rest of Christianity down through the ages. God never promised you a rose garden, as I think it was Patsy Cline used to sing, right? Okay, so when we think about that, we need to understand that when God allows a trial or a temptation or a difficult time to come into our lives, it's at his hand and he has given us everything we need to work through those difficult times and he has promised never to leave us nor forsake us no matter what the trial might be. We see in the pages of scripture that men like Joseph, wow, what a life he lived. You know, we look at, we look at Joseph and we say, you know, there's never really a, a sin in Joseph's life that's pointed out in Scripture. I'm not saying that Joseph was perfect. He, we know he wasn't. In fact, some would say, well, maybe the sin of arrogance or pride when he started telling all these dreams. But, but the Scriptures never call it that, okay? So there's never a, a sin. Like David, we look at David and we say, yes, he was a man after God's own heart. But look at the grave sins in his life. We look at Joseph and there's nothing glaring in his life. And yet look at the trouble, look at the trials, look at the, the tribulations that this poor guy went through. He was just living life. He was obeying his father. He took a package, a care package to his brothers who were taking care of the sheep. Um, and they took him, threw him in a coat. They roughed him up a little bit, threw him in a, in a, in a ditch, in a pit, and took his coat away from him. And they were going to kill him, believe it or not. And then along comes a group of traders, why should we kill him? We can make money off of him. So they sold him as a slave into Egypt. And from that point on, we would look at him externally and say, boy, nothing really went right for Joseph, did it? He, was, he started off, yeah, Potiphar. Potiphar wants him because he looks good, looks strong, strapping young man, I'll make him my servant. He worked his way up into Potiphar's house and then Potiphar's wife falsely accused him. Potiphar had him thrown in prison, and not just any prison, but the most secure prison there was, the king's prison. No getting out of there. Forgot about there, right? In prison, well, God used him in there to minister to people, not only the, uh, the two that had dreams, but also the prison guard. And eventually, God brought him out of prison and placed him in the very uh, highest position in the land, second to Pharaoh. God was watching out for Joseph. Even, even all those bad things that happened to Joseph, at least from our point of view, boy, that was awful. That was terrible. It can't get much worse than that for that poor guy. I'm glad I'm not him. And then God placed him second in command in the most powerful land in the world. God takes care of his people, his children. We're going to see that this morning as we take a look at this psalm. As I said, it's my favorite psalm in the Psalter. As you're turning there to Psalm 121, let me read Erling Olson's account of what he says in, in regards to this psalm. He says, The very reading of this psalm carries with it tremendous blessing and causes the redeemed heart to throb with joy. Can you imagine a great company of people marching up the hillside of Judea singing, I will lift my eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help? And the reply is, so you got one side, I will lift my eyes unto the hills, where does my help come from? And then you have another group of people saying, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And on and on you have this, this uh, kind of this conversation going back, this worship going back and forth. Um, it's kind of like, you know, um, sometimes you're, well, I was watching, I don't, I don't know why I've been watching them, but anyway, I was watching the Yankee game, and there was um, uh, chants that were going up uh, in Tampa Bay, you know, New York Yankees, New York, and of course, the others, the, they're in Tampa, so, but there's a lot of fans for the Yankees down there in Tampa, but then the Tampa Bay fans were shouting, Tampa Bay, Tampa, so it's kind of this duel going on back and forth. Here's, that's the idea you got here. The, the worshipers are going up to Jerusalem, and they're saying, I will lift my eyes to the hills, from whence comes the, my help, my help comes from the Lord, the Lord who is the maker, and so it's going back and forth, this responsive worship, if you will. 
See, Erling Olsen, we get the idea that this would be classified as a worship song or even a celebration psalm of who our great God is. Now, this whole group of worship songs or ascent psalms, we see them in, in Psalm 120 all the way to 134. They are seen as worship songs that the worshipers would sing as they, walk, as they marched up to Jerusalem. Now, you have to understand the, 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 the topography, if you will, of Jerusalem. When you're going to Jerusalem, you're going up to the highest place that there is for a long way around you. So you could, as you walked up to the hill to Jerusalem or the mountain, Jerusalem, you saw everywhere around you, okay? So they're marching up to this high point where they will worship God. You know, we, we try to do the same thing in our worship services that they did then, to declare the worth of our great God. The Israelites would sing songs as they were marching up the, the mountain to Jerusalem, and they began to sing these incredible songs as they journeyed upward, And the reason they were singing these songs was to get their heart ready to go into worship when they got to the temple to praise and glorify the one true God. You see, when we gather together and we start our service at 10.07, we don't gather together and sing songs just because it makes us feel good. We don't sing songs just because we have have an awful short song service without the songs. Because listen to me, I can preach for a lot longer than what I preach even when we have songs. Okay, I could go on for an hour or more. You say, sometimes you do, Pastor. Um, but anyway, um, we, we don't just use songs as fillers. Songs are worship. Now, sometimes we make the mistake and we say that the songs are the worship part of the service. No, our whole service is geared toward and designed towards worshiping God. Even when you walk in and you put your money in the offering box, that's an act of worship. When we sing songs, that's an act of worship. When you sit here and you listen to me preach to you, and I'm not talking to you, by the way, okay? Um, I know that we've gotten to a place in our um, Christianity where we call the time when the person stands up behind a desk or sits down on a stool and talks. We call it the the, the pastor's talk. We don't talk here at Calvary Baptist Church when we're doing this. We preach here. We preach God's word. We declare to you the word of God. What I'm saying to you is not something that I've made up. It's not something that I thought, well, you know, I I think I should sit down and write something this week and and I write it. I start with God's word. Many times you will leave and you'll say, Pastor, that was a very good message. Thank you so much. And I'll say, well, when I got great source material, I I shouldn't go wrong. Okay? When we preach, we preach the Word of God. And can I remind you that if at any point in time somebody stands up here, me included, and starts pontificating on their own opinions, you should have a problem with that. You should say, Pastor, that's not what we came here to do. That's not what we asked you to be our pastor to do. So don't do that again or we're going to have a problem. We're going to have an issue. Okay? God's word is the focal point of our services and that's how we worship God. By declaring truth and singing truth and obeying truth that has been declared to us in the pages of scripture. That's what worship is all about. And that's what Calvary Baptist Church is about and should always be about as long as the Lord should tarry. We sing these songs to prepare our hearts. We sing these songs to remind us of what our great God has accomplished. These songs of ascents did the same thing for the Jews as they marched up to Jerusalem. Again, here's a, here's a thought from the Nelson Study Bible about the songs of ascent. It says this, This group of hymns was likely used by pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem to worship the Lord during the three annual national feasts. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. As pilgrim families made the arduous journey to the holy city for festive worship, they would use these psalms as encouragement along the way. It, also, it is also possible that once they arrived in Jerusalem, they would sing these songs anew as they drew near the temple, reenacting their journey and affirming God's blessing on the paths. Testimonies, if you will. Thank you, God, for your safety. Thank you, God, for making it possible for me to get here. 
So with all of these things in mind, let's take a closer look at Psalm 121, this psalm that reminds us that we are in good hands with Jehovah God. So I've asked um, our deacons to help me this morning with a reading, and uh, we're going to read Psalm 121 together, um, and it's going to be different than how we normally read. Uh, So it's just going to be four people reading, but I would like you to still stand with me, if you will, and we will uh, concentrate. The words will be on the screen. You listen as we read together this morning, Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. The one who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The one who keeps his people. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun, the burning sun, shall not strike you by day, nor the moon, or the possible perils of the the night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out. And your coming in. From this time forth and forevermore. Thank you, men. Let's ask God to bless our time together in his word. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you so much for the privilege of worshiping together. Father, as we continue our worship this morning, looking into Psalm 121, we ask that you would encourage our hearts, that you would strengthen our walk with you, that you would challenge us, if that need be the case, to to be committed to you and to let you work and direct in our lives. Father, thank you for the fact that we rest in your hands and there's no better place for the child of God to be than in the hands of our great God. Thank you, Father, for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who makes it possible for us to be rightly related to you. We pray these things in his name, the name of our Savior and your Son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So as we get started this morning, I want you to take a look with me at verses 1 and 2. And in this passage, these two verses, we see the hand of the one who promotes help. The hand of the one who promotes help. David says here, the psalmist says, I will lift mine eyes to the hills. I want you to understand here that help is a sure thing. Help is a sure thing. It's not a, it's not a well, I wonder if God will help me. I, I, I hope God will help me. Maybe it would be nice if God helped me. No, this help that we're getting from God is a sure thing. David says, I'm going to lift my eyes to the hills. I'm looking towards the, if you will, at that point in time, the abode of God. That was where the temple was. That's where the Holy of Holies was. That's where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And that's what the people thought when they went up to Jerusalem. They're going up to the Temple Mount to worship the one true God. In the presence of God, I will worship him there in the temple. You see, as as they approached Jerusalem, they had to look up because it's set on a hill higher than anything else around it. Now, depending on your perspective, these hills could either be a place of comfort and a place of refuge like they were for David so often when he was on the run from Saul. He took comfort and he took refuge in hiding in these hills. Or they could be a distressing place, a hiding place for robbers and thieves. But here's the fact for the child of God. The sure thing is that God is the God in the hills. God is a God who lives and resides and dwells and protects his children even in the hills. Sound familiar? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for my God is with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Okay, Even while I'm in the hills, the perilous hills, I am protected by my great God. So this, this help is a sure thing. We also see the source of my help. David cries out, he says, from whence comes my help? Or where does my help come from? This word for help here in the Hebrew means to give assistance or support. Anybody ever need to have assistance or support in your life? I, I, I know that I've had to have assistance and support in my life not only from my family members, but sometimes from things like this. Okay? Now, when, when, 
when you have certain injuries in life, you end up using these. I, I've had three occasions that I remember in my life where I've had to be part of the crutch club, as we called it at BBC. One time after we were married, we were getting ready to go to Messina, and um, it had been a nice day the day before. Sun was out. It was winter. Sun was out, so all the snow that was on the roof was starting to melt. Well, at night, it got cold, and all the liquid that was on the roof ran down on the porch to our house back door. And I was going to, we were getting up early so we could get on the road and get off to Messina without any, spend the whole day, the whole weekend there. And um, I took my first step on the porch, not knowing that it was ice covered. And my foot went out from underneath me and went down to the last step. And when I got to the last step, my ankle had twisted a little bit and I came down with all my weight with my ankle like this on that last step. I rolled over into the snowbank and sat there for about five minutes, just in pain. I think in my mind, I was thinking, I wonder if my wife's going to come out here eventually and see why it's taking me so long to put these few bags in the car. It never happened. So anyway, I, I finally mustered up enough strength, and I was only wearing like tennis shoes or sneakers uh, at the time. And I hobbled into the house, uh, you know, hopping up the steps, being careful not to slip again, but finally got in the house and, and on, onto the counter and, you know, just bracing myself the whole way. Uh, and she said, what, did you, what happened? I said, I, I fell. It's all icy out there, so be careful. So I sat down. I put on my winter boots, what I should have done in the first place, right? Put on my winter boots, laced, laced them up nice and tight, drove the three and a half hours to Messina, got to Messina, Never took my boots off, had lunch, went to the mall, walked around for a couple of hours, came home, had supper, sat down, watched TV, eventually went upstairs to bed, and I took off my boot. Poof. My ankle was swollen really bad. So I thought, well, let's see what happens overnight. So we went to bed. Next morning, Barb's in the bathroom getting ready to, to, to go to church. And I kicked off the covers, and my foot was about this black, about the black of my shoe. And I hobbled into the bathroom, and I said, I, I don't think I'm going to church this morning. Now, even before I was a pastor, we didn't miss church, okay? So, so she said, what do you mean you're not going to church this morning? So I, I, I picked up my foot, and I, I think she was actually in the shower. I stuck it in the shower. And you know, normally I get this response when we're in the car, so... <gasps> That gasp came out of the shower. And uh, she says, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to call my brother and see if he can come and take me to the hospital. So she finished getting Joshua ready to go to church, and she and my mom and Joshua went to church, and Brad came over, and uh, in the car we go, and we get to the hospital, and uh, we're sitting in the emergency room, and doctor walks by, he's attending to other people, walks by, and he sees my black foot, and he goes, oh, he says, don't be surprised if we tell you that's broken after we take the x-ray. I said, I kind of expected that. So after they didn't even make me walk down to the radiology department. They brought an x-ray machine to me and x-rayed my foot. And uh, he says, well, he says, I don't, believe it or not, see a break there. He said, but I'm going to have you take the x-rays back to your doctor uh, when you go, and he can make the diagnosis and determine what's best for you. So next, uh, we got what? Drove back to, to Holmesville on Monday, and I went to see the doctor, and he says, well, he says, it's not broken. He says, it sure looks like it should be broken, but it's not broken. He says, what you've done is you've torn the taliofibular ligament. And he says, you've torn it quite well. He said, so that's, that's what you're, and you're, you're going to have to be on crutches. So for the next six or eight weeks, these things were my friends. I, I didn't go anywhere without them. And by, by the time I was done, those six or eight weeks, I was ready to get rid of these things. I, I was tired of them, but I couldn't get around anywhere without them. Okay, So that's the idea of this source of help, this assistance. You can't do anything without this help. David is quite certain that nothing in life that is worth doing, he can do on his own without the assistance of his great God. Without the assistance of the one true God, the God who he looks to the heavens for help and support from. 
Jesus, God is our source of help. We also see in our text this morning the substance of our help. David says, my help, my divine assistance comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. This idea again of crutches, I love, you know me, I love music, right? Um, and there's a, 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 a group from the, I don't know, I suppose late 70s, early 80s, Andres Blackwood and Company. Okay, Sherman Andres sings the lead, and Terry Blackwood is the, is the second part of the group. Um, and, and Sherman Andres is giving a talk when he was uh, singing, and he says, you know, he says, some people say that Christianity is a pair of crutches, that you can't get, you, you, you know, you have to limp through life with God. And he looks at him, he looks out to the crowd, and he says, can I tell you this? He says, They're not, Christianity isn't crutches, because you can't limp into heaven without God. Christianity and God is a stretcher because you need God for everything in life, no matter where you go, no matter what you do. That's how dependent we are on this help that God has given to us. Our source of help comes from the Lord. My help comes from the Lord who made what? Heaven and earth. Everywhere and everything, God is the creator. We need to understand that the psalmist is not looking into the hills for his help. He is saying that when I'm in the hills, God is my help. He's not looking to the hills for his strength. He's not worshiping the creation. Instead, he's understanding and knowing that the creator is the one who blessed us with these hills and the one who protects us in these hills. I will lift my eyes into the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, who made these very hills that I'm looking at. My help is from the maker of the hills. Songwriter Carmen, in his amazing song, America Again, puts it this way. He says, if you're born again, you don't need to look to the stars for your answers, or we could say to the hills for your help. You can look to the very one who made those hills. We look to the creator. We look to God. The psalmist was well aware that Jehovah, the Lord God, the covenant-keeping God, was the substance of his strength. Not only is Jehovah the covenant-keeping God, but he is the creator of the very hills. One commentator put it this way. He said, the sole source of help comes from Yahweh, who is the creator and has unlimited power. Who do you want help from? One, a man who can give you a little bit of help or the creator of the universe who can give you unlimited help. You can tap into the very creator of the universe through a relationship with Jesus Christ. My help comes from the Lord. So that we have here is the the whole idea of the hand of the one who promotes help. We also see in verses three and four, the hand of the preserver. You see, you know, when we go out in a boat or we go out, when the little kids go out swimming, what do you do with them? You put on a life preserver, right? Used to be able, you could choose to put on a life preserver. Now you have to put on a life preserver in your boat, okay? You, you make the choice to, to put on this preserver. Why? Because it's going to preserve your life. It's going to keep you safe. It's going to protect you if you fall out of the boat or if you get in over, the, over your head in the water and it will protect you. This idea here shows us the fact of security. The word keeps where, where the psalmist says, the Lord is my keeper. The word keeps here, it's used twice in verses three and four and it means to exercise great care over or to guard one's life or one's possession. We like, as I said earlier, the idea of security, okay? When we lived in South Africa, everybody had dogs. We had dogs. We had three dachshunds, okay? Now, we didn't necessarily have dachshunds for security or for protection, but one of our dachshunds, Ollie, had a very deep dog bark, okay? And one day, somebody came, often people came knocking on our door looking for whatever. Um, and this guy comes knocking on the door. He says, I need money. I said, I don't give money. I have food. I'll give you food. Um, I can take you shopping if you need, but I, 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 I don't give out money. He said, no, I want, and of course, walking up the, dog, the driveway, Ollie 
hears or smells or whatever this guy walking and so he's at the door and he's barking like crazy and 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 so i only open the door really far and i leave the burglar gate closed and and so the guy says i i want money and i said i'm not giving you money he says no you don't you're not listening to me i want money i said well you're not listening to me because i said i'm not giving you money and and they says boy says that must be an awful big dog I said, well, I said, uh, you stay where you're supposed to stay, and I'll keep my dog where he's supposed to stay. Meanwhile, and uh, so this guy's getting more and more aggressive, and Ollie can sense that, and so Ollie's getting more and more aggressive, and he looks at me one more time, and he says, I said I want money. I said, I think it's time you meet my dog. No, 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 boss, no, boss, no, boss. I said, okay, then you can either take the food and leave, or you can just leave, otherwise you're going to meet my dog. No, 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 I'm leaving, I'm leaving. And he turned around and left. Security. Our dogs, even though they were small dogs, they served as a way of security. Every person almost in South Africa had dogs. So let me show you a picture here. What do you think about this kind of a dog for a watchdog? Clifford, the big red dog, right? Everybody loves Clifford. Is he, the guy, is he the dog you're going to choose to be your watchdog, to be your guardian? Probably not, unless he beat the guys to death with his tail as it's wagging back and forth, right? You know, people that come to our house, they don't, they, they're kind of taken aback by Kanzi uh, and, and Jaunty who are barking. But once you come in the house, if you get in the house, they're going to love you to death. Okay, they're going to jump up on you, not because they want to bite you, but because they want to lick you and they want you to pet them and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so I don't think I'm going to choose Clifford as my guard dog. But maybe you've seen these dogs before too. They're referred to as the lads in, in Magnum P.I., Zeus and Apollo. Okay, now this is a pretty docile picture of Zeus and Apollo, but you can imagine what they would do well, you can, I mean, every time Magnum went someplace he wasn't supposed to go on the estate, right? These dogs were chasing him. He was, ended up jumping over walls and jumping into the ocean and all kinds of stuff to get away from the lads. Why? Because the lads were trained to be security dogs. The lads were trained to make sure that anybody that wasn't supposed to be on the property didn't come on the property. When we worked, I worked for a doc, an eye doctor in Bible college, and uh, he, had, he had Franz and Gretel, Two German shepherds, okay? Greta was getting old, and so she kind of didn't do too much. But Franz, her son, 110 pounds of pure muscle. If, you, if Franz stood on your foot, you knew it. You're like, get off my foot, you big lug. He'd lean up against you, and he'd about knock you over. Franz had some security dog training. But one thing Franz didn't like was the doorbell. You did not ring the doorbell because he would go nuts. UPS delivery guy knew that. So he would drive into the driveway, and if our car was there, windows down, he wouldn't even get out of his truck. He would throw the delivery box into the car and back up and go away because he knew what Franz would do if he stepped out of that truck because he wasn't supposed to be on the property. He wasn't the guy who owned that place. We had a guy who came to work with us one time, uh, and he was being... You know, he thought, I'll, uh, these dogs, they'll like me. So my roommate was in the barn, and I was out, stand, out standing next to this other guy. Um, and we were training how to do the job. And, and he looks at Franz, and he looks at Dave, and he says to Franz, he says, sick him, Franz, and he points at Dave. And Dave says, don't say that, because Franz knows what sick him means. Don't say that. And Jimmy looks at Franz, he says, Franz, sick him. Franz looks up at him. Now, we've been working here for a couple years now, okay? So Franz knows who we are. So Jimmy looks at Franz, and he looks at Dave, and he says, Dumb dog, I said sick him! And Franz looks at him, and he goes, Rump! Right a bite, bite right out of his backside. He got in his car, and he, ran, he ran, ran to his car as fast as he could, and he drove back to campus. I'm not going back to work there! That dog's crazy! That dog knows what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to protect the ones who need protecting on the property. Security. Our God is the security that you and I need and long for. There is great comfort to be found when we understand the lengths to which our keeper is able to go and will go for us. He is our keeper. 
He is the one who gives us the strength and the hope and the protection that we need. He is the one who exercises great care over our lives. He is the one who guards our lives. And I'm going to tell you, I'm glad that he's guarding my life. Because he is the all-powerful, covenant-keeping God, referred to by the Israelites as Yahweh. What a great God. It's the fact of our security. We also see the comfort of stability. Jehovah the keeper will not allow your foot to be moved. You see, as the pilgrims journeyed to Jerusalem, they would pass through many treacherous places. When walking up the mountainside, it's always nice. Now, we, we used to take hikes in South Africa. We would hike up some, some mountainsides and things like that. It was always nice to know that when you put your foot down, it was going to stay where you put it. We got to the point where, you know, you're walking on rocky ground and you kind of would put your foot down and you would just test it a little bit. See if it was going to stay before you put all of your weight on that one spot. The Lord is our keeper. He is our security. He is our stability. He says, Jehovah will not let your foot be moved. When you're journeying the path that God has called you to journey, you know that when you put your foot down, it is going down on solid and secure space. Not only was the sure footing important on the journey to Jerusalem to worship, but it's also important in our everyday lives as we serve our God and represent him in a lost and dying world. It's nice to know that when you step out in faith and you communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the keeper is going to let your foot land in a secure spot. Spurgeon makes this observation. He says, Among the hills and ravines of Palestine, the literal keeping of the feet is a great mercy. But in the slippery ways of a tried and afflicted life, the boon of upholding is a priceless value. For a single false step might cause a fall fraught with awful danger. To stand erect and pursue the even tenor of our way is a blessing which only God can give, which is worthy of the divine hand and worthy also of perennial gratitude. You and I should be so thankful for the promise of God's protective care in our lives, for the security and stability that he offers to us as his children. We can be confident that he will not allow our foot, whether it's literal for the worshipers of Jerusalem walking up to worship him, or figurative in a sense for us as we live in this dying, sin-cursed world. Our feet, our steps are secure if we're walking in the paths that God wants us to walk in. He promised us also steadfast care when he says, The keeper Jehovah will not slumber, neither will he slumber or sleep. What is slumber? Well, slumber is that time of dozing before you actually fall asleep. Okay? I, I read something the other day. A friend of mine posted, he says, When is bedtime for a retired person? Two hours after you fall asleep on the couch or in your chair. Okay? Um, But you see, that's the idea of slumbering those two hours before you actually get into bed. You're just kind of sitting there and you, like my wife, I'm watching the Yankee game and she probably hears me snore a little bit. She says, nice game, huh? And I'll have to look up at the score and see that they're losing. I said, no, 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 not really. Um, But anyway, this idea of slumbering, it's where you are before you actually plan to go to bed. We've all been there. It, it always amazed me that when Barb's dad would sit down on the couch. Uh, it, you know, if he sat there for more than five minutes, you'd see him go. And I never understood that till now. Because when I sit down on the couch, and I do the same thing. Okay? Slumber. God never slumbers. Not only does he never slumber, but the psalmist goes on to say, he doesn't slumber, neither does he sleep. Now, this journey to Jerusalem was usually, for many people, a far journey, a long ways for them to go, because they only went there three times a year on these journeys, so they would journey from wherever they lived in Israel to Jerusalem, a long way, and they didn't get in the car and drive, they walked, or they rode their donkey, and it was a treacherous way, it was a long way, it took them a long time to get there. 
Probably at least one night, if not two or three nights of the journey would be spent someplace other than home. We, when we were dating and, and going to get married, we would go to Barb's mom and dad's and we would spend part of the Christmas vacation there while we, before we got married. And then we would drive and my mom told us, you better not stop anywhere along the way. She didn't trust us. I mean, not because she didn't have any reason to trust, but just because she knows guys and girls. And so she said, you can't, you, you can't spend the night anywhere. You've got to come all the way through. 20-hour drive. Griggsville, Illinois, and Messina, New York. There's no way to make it shorter. Sometimes you tried to go through Canada, that usually end up going longer because you hit Toronto and they do doing construction and six lanes go to one lane and you wait. You sit and you sit and you sit. And so this six hour, this 20 hour drive took a long time to get there. We get married and we're driving all the way through and I said to Barbara, I said, you know, we actually can stop and spend the night in a hotel. Oh, yeah, we can. We needed to sleep. Now, a couple of times, well, when we were younger, we used to do it all the time. We, we, then when we had kids and all that, no ways. We either stopped at friends along the way or we stopped at a hotel. Um, recently, the last couple of times we went out, at least one way we drove all the way through. It's tough, hard. When you get there, you're ready for what? Sleep, Okay. So God neither slumbers nor sleeps. When you sleep, you just, you know, sometimes I'll fall asleep in the chair. And, I, and, I, and I've done it three or four times. And I look at my wife and say, you know what? I'm just going to go take a nap. I'm going to lay down for 20 minutes. Wake me up. Sleep. That's what you're intending to do. You need to be restored. You need to be refreshed. So you go and you lay down where you're going to get good sleep. God doesn't do that. We do it because we need it. God doesn't need it. He neither slumbers nor does he sleep. When we built our church in South Africa, we had to hire a night watchman to stay at our building. We had a container on the property. In the, like a month after we had the container on the property, we had all our tools inside the container. Um, somebody comes along, cuts the lock on the container, breaks in, steals all the tools. Most of them were mine. They were all American. So what a surprise he got when he went to plug it in the outlet and realized, oh, I can't use these tools because everything works on 220 has a different plug on them. But he wasn't worried about that when he was taking them out of the container. He was just taking them. So the guys who built our building comes to me, Larry comes to me, he says, hey, Pastor Timmy says, first thing you need to do is put a fence around this property. I said, uh-uh, we're not doing that. So what do you mean you're not doing that? That's what all builders do. They put a fence around the property. I said, listen, the first message that we send to the community we're building a church in is not stay out. We don't want that message. We want people to come, not to stay away. Oh, I never thought of it that way. He says, well, he says, all right, he says, you're going to have to hire a night watchman. And when you hire the night watchman, do not have any place comfortable for him to sit down. Because if you do, he'll fall asleep. And if he falls asleep, he's not doing his job. So nothing comfortable. After we got the building up, the shell was up, and it was securable with locks and whatever, <laughs> Uncle Henry would sit in there, and he would build a fire inside the building. Till the day we put the styrofoam roof or ceiling in there, you could see the black smoke that had been there from him building his fire. One time, he was sitting there by the fire, and these guys came in, uh, and they told him to leave. He says, what do you mean I leave? He says, you leave. He says, we're coming back in an hour, and you better be gone because we want what's in this building. He didn't leave. He called our security. He called our armed guards. Who, who when they when you when you call them, they show up with their guns drawn, looking for whoever's not supposed to be there. He called them, and nobody came back. But you see, security. We want to have this idea of security. Henry couldn't sleep at night. That was his job to stay awake. God is on duty twenty four seven, three hundred sixty five days of the year. He is always on guard for you and for me. He is watching out for us. He doesn't get tired of watching out for his children. Sometimes Uncle Henry would call up and say, I can't come tonight, I'm too tired. What do you mean you can't come? What are you supposed to get? I'll find somebody for you. We never have to, call, we never have to receive a call from God when he says, I'm too tired to watch out for you. I can't look out for, over you today. It, it's too much. You got too much going on in your life. I can't do it for you and everyone else. God never makes that kind of a call. 
All the time, God is watching out for us. So we have the hand of the preserver. In verses 5 and 6, we have the hand of the protector. The psalmist enlarges the keeper's services here. These services fall under the realm of a protector. What does the protector protect his children from? Well, we're going to see in the next couple of verses that he first of all protects with a perfect shelter. The psalmist says, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. He is your shade on your right hand. Can I tell you? Well, have you ever been to the Middle East? No, me neither, but someday I might go. But I have been in Africa. I've lived in Africa for many years. And it gets hot. Much hotter there than it gets here because you're closer to the equator. Okay, so the, this idea of a shelter, it gets extremely hot in the Middle East, especially in the summer. And when you're journeying to Jerusalem to worship your God, and it, you need to have a shelter. You need to have protection from the sun. They may not have sunscreen, lotion, or SPF idea ratings in the, in the Bible times, but they had a protection. They had a way to protect themselves from the sun. We would have teams come to visit us in South Africa, and, and every time we would take them upstairs, up to the top of our deck, uh, which is on top of the garage, and, and just so they could feel the heat of the sun beating down on them. And we would say to them, okay, tomorrow we're going to start working on the building Please, please wear a hat and please wear sunscreen. These guys most of the time would come during the winter here, during our summer. So it was like November, December, January coming. Oh, we're going to get some sun. We're going to get a tan. Please use sunscreen. Minimum SPF 30. Okay, okay. Half of them most of the time didn't wear a hat. Didn't have sunscreen. I'd walk around and say, you need to have a hat. Ah, don't worry about it. I'm okay. I'm used to the sun. I said, it's not the same sun. It's much hotter here. End of the day, we'd be ended up going, and we got to the point where we didn't go on that day. We had it on hand, get this stuff called rehydrate, because they were all dehydrated, and they all had sunburns. We should have listened to you, Pastor Mowers. Need the sun, need, need the protection from the sun, need some kind of shade that helps you defeat the burning rays of the sun. In South Africa, we used umbrellas. We used them a lot in the summertime as well. Why? Because you need a shade from the sun. The psalmist says, the Lord is your shade. He's your protector. He's the one who keeps the sun off your head. Now, for me, fair-skinned as I am, I need that kind of protection. A couple weeks ago, I went to the dermatologist. Had to have a couple spots burned off. He did a full examination. He says, you know, he says, I'm impressed. He said, for somebody as fair as you, blue eyes, blonde hair, very fair-skinned, You've taken very good care of your body. I don't go anywhere without a hat and sunscreen. My kids laugh at me. I go out to mow the lawn. Psh, psh, sunscreen. Dad, what are you doing? So I'm putting on sunscreen. Why? I said, because I know that's what I need. I'm not going to take a chance. It was somewhat validating to have the dermatologist tell me, he says, you've taken very good care of your skin. Thank you, I've tried. God takes care of us better than we can take care of ourselves. He is our shade. Shade on the right hand. The right hand in Scripture represents the place of human need. You see, God was there, right there, steady, ready to give the desperately needed protection from the sun. He's a perfect shelter for his children. For you and I, he is a perfect shelter shelter. We also see that he is a sustaining shade. He says, the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. When we had a watchman staying at the church, when morning came, you know what Uncle Henry did every day? He went home when morning came. Why? Because he was there to watch at night. The workers came and started working and nobody would come to the site to do anything they shouldn't do when the workers were there. But Uncle Henry always went home at night. His job was to stay through the night, make sure nothing went missing, make sure nothing was damaged in the building, and then he could go home. The keeper who is Jehovah does not go home in the morning. 
He stays all day, all night, all day, all night, all week, all month, all year, for all of eternity. The shade, the keeper, never leaves us. 24-7 coverage, better than all state. Better than all state. What a difference between our God and the gods of the pagans. Because the pagan gods, they were made in the image of man. You know what the pagan gods needed to do? They needed to sleep. They slumbered. Remember when, uh, I think it was Elijah, who was um, uh, up there in Mount Carmel, and he's having this confrontation with the prophets of Baal, and, and nothing was going right for the prophets of Baal. And Elijah says to them, hey, he says, you know what? Your God, he might be sleeping. He might have had a busy day yesterday and he's sleeping in a little bit. So you better call a little bit louder to wake him up so he can hear you and act for you. Meanwhile, knowing the whole time that there is no God of Baal. He's impotent. He can't do anything. But the God of Jehovah, oh man, when Elijah called for, Jehovah, for, for, the, for the fire to come down out of heaven, <laughs> came down just like that. Licked up all the water. Nothing was left. You see, our God is always available, always ready, always acting because he doesn't sleep. He doesn't even need to rest. I like what William Van German says about this passage. He says in verses 3 and 6, refer to the guardianship of God. What does the doctrine of Yahweh's guardianship mean? It means he protects, guides, and blesses his own. He will not permit them to totter or to stumble. He will be the shade of his own as he protects them from the dangers of the night and the day. As he is at their right hand, he is the shepherd of Israel who protects, guides, and blesses his own sheep. Regardless of what is happening in life, whether at work or at home, whether at sleep or awake, the Lord is there to help and protect. What a God! What a God our Jehovah God is. Well, let's wrap it up with verses 7 and 8. We see the hand of the preserver. The word preserve means to hedge about, to attend to, and to protect. Spurgeon says this word preserve is a far-reaching word of covering. It includes everything and excludes nothing. The wings of Jehovah amply guard his own from evils, great and small, temporal and eternal. As you look at these last two verses, we see that Jehovah actually preserves. We see what it is that he preserves. We see a guarantee here when he says, the Lord shall preserve you. He shall preserve you. There's a personal aspect to the preserving ability of Almighty God. You see, God watched out over Israel. If it was true for Israel, you know what? It's true for each individual child that belongs to God. God will watch over you just like he watches over Israel. The guarantee the Lord shall preserve you. There's also a great hope here. The Lord, he shall preserve your soul. The word for soul here means to your very being, your life. It's ultimate source being in Jehovah God himself. God is concerned with the intimate details of your life. And he will watch out over you all the time. That is why it's important for us to listen to the words of Solomon when he said in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he shall do what? He shall direct your paths. What does that mean? Don't step there. That's, that rock is loose. Don't step there. You might fall off the edge of the cliff. Here, come over here. There's, there's shade for you here. The Lord is directing our paths. He's guiding our steps. And for the child of God, for you and I, that path leads to heaven for all of eternity. So the Lord shall preserve your soul, not only in the here and now, but also in the future. When we get the glory, we'll have that eternal protection preserved throughout all of eternity. There is great hope in our God. We also see that it's a hope that goes on and on and on. David says, the Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in. First of all, he uses the negative. He says, you're going out. And then he uses the positive. He says, you're coming in. The psalmist was employing a favorite tool of Hebrew literature to include every aspect of life. You see, it didn't matter if you were going on a trip 
or staying home. It didn't matter if you were on your way to work or on your way to play. It didn't matter if you were young or if you're old. But if you're a child of God, you can be assured of his watch care over you. No matter what, God is holding on to us. I love that song we sing. He will hold me fast. I can't hold on to God. I'll let go. My strength isn't good enough. My grip isn't strong enough. Last year, I had carpal tunnel surgery on both wrists. Why? Because I lost my grip. I couldn't hold on to things. I reached down to pick something up and it would fall out of my hands. That's the way our grip is as humans. It's frail. But God's grip on us Never lose it. He will hold me fast. No matter what, he's got a hold of my life. It goes on and on and on from the very day I trust him as my savior till he takes me home to be with him for all of eternity. And then we see God's hope from this time forth and forevermore. You see, not only are we talking about the here and now, but we're talking about eternity as well. The hope is eternal. So if it's eternal hope, Who must this hope come from? There's only one eternal being, and that's God. That's Jehovah. So the hope that is ours is God's hope for you and I. This hope is hope that helps us. Helps us what, Pastor? Well, as my pastor used to say when I was growing up, he he used to tell us, he used to finish most, most services by saying, keep on keeping on. As God's people, you need to keep on keeping on. It's that hope that helps you and I keep on keeping on. This hope is good for today. It's good for tomorrow. It's good throughout our life. And it's good into eternity. So can I remind you this morning that you're in good hands with Jehovah God. So as we conclude, I want you to notice something. We've seen the incredible care of Jehovah God in this wonderful psalm, but you need to know who benefits from this psalm. Who benefits from Jehovah the helper, the keeper, the protector, and the preserver? Well, only those that are part of his family benefit from that God, from our God. You see, you can have a security company, ADT or Ring or whatever it is you have, but you know what? None of them are going to preserve and protect like our great God. None of them are going to do what God did for us. None of them are going to send their son to die in my place. You see, that's what God did. That's why we have this protection. That's why we have this security. That's why we have this hope. If you're here this morning, you've never repented of your sins and trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. This wonderful psalm does not really pertain to you. You can't take advantage of all the amazing things in this psalm. But to those of us who are God's children, wow, part of God's family, our hearts can throb with joy and encouragement that this psalm brings to the child of God. We can enjoy the blessings of his preserving hope, his protective care. What a great God you and I have. I don't want to mislead you, though. I don't want you to think if I trust Jesus as my Savior, everything's going to be fine, not going to be have any problems. No, it's just like when we have a problem, we need to call 911. What do they do? They show up. They're not always successful. Sometimes they make mistakes. The good thing for you and I, when we cry out to God, he's always successful. He never makes a mistake. You've heard me say it before. He's too wise to make a mistake and too loving not to care. Our great God is watching out, for over, watching out over you and I. So what do we do with what we've heard this morning? Well, if you're in the family, I would suggest you bow your head And you thank God for his goodness to you. And while you're thanking him, take a moment to examine your heart, much like you did at communion time this morning, to see if there's anything you need to deal with before God. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, then what you need to do is your your first order of business, if if you will, is to 
cry out to God for salvation. Accept that gift of eternal life that he has made available to everyone. Let's bow our heads and speak to Jehovah God, the one whose good hands we rest in all the time. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you for your hands, the hands of the shepherd, the hands of the Savior, the hands of the one who brings security to the children of God. Father, we are thankful for who you are, worthy of all of our adoration, all of our worship, all of our glory that we can give to you. You're worthy of it all and even then some. Father, we're thankful not only for who you are, but we're thankful for what you've done in our lives. Father, you have provided for us everlasting life through your son, Jesus Christ, and his work on the cross of Calvary. You provide for us daily protection and care and sustenance. You promise to meet all of our needs, whatever they might be. And so, Father, we say thank you for that. We are blessed to know you as our Father and to have Jesus as our friend. Father, we ask that you'd help us to go out from this place today to honor you, to glorify you, to live in the promises that you have made of protection and perseverance and your ever-watchful care over our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.